You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The paramount obligation of a chief executive of any state is, is to maintain the peace and good order of his state and community. Orville Faubus was governor of Arkansas in the 1950s. His name becomes known well beyond Arkansas, really all over the world, during the Little Rock Crisis of 1957, because he uses the Arkansas National Guard to stop African Americans from entering Little Rock Central High School as part of a federally ordered racial desegregation. There's a showdown with President Eisenhower, and Eisenhower sends him a telegram, the Constitution will be upheld by me in every legal means at my command. They have a short conference. Governor Faubus actually removes National Guard troops initially. Then, when the mayor of Little Rock, Arkansas, Woodrow Wilson Mann, says a mob is formed at Central High School in Little Rock, National Guard troops, state police come back. And what's more, they prevent African Americans from entering Little Rock Central High. The guard was not called out to prevent integration, but to keep the peace and order of the community. Based upon the premise that the peace and good order of the community is paramount to all other issues. Eisenhower federalizes the Arkansas National Guard, orders them to return to their armories, then sends in the 101st Airborne Division to oversee the African-American students entering Little Rock Central High and enforcing the federal court order. Faubus complains about a usurpation of power by the federal government. But as the listener A. Holt Williams points out, Faubus's career has a weird turn at the end. Here's what A. Holt Williams asks on the My History Can Beat Up Your Politics discussion group on Facebook. We do have a discussion group there where fans of the show or people who aren't fans, I guess, can discuss. Got a question for a future podcast. How did Orville Faubus go from opposing Brown versus the board to endorsing Jesse Jackson for president by 1988. There's got to be an interesting story there, including his later runs for governor against a man by the name of William Jefferson Clinton. How did Clinton run against him? Was Faubus repentant or did Clinton ever bring up his past? Or was Faubus a has-been and a non-factor? I always find it fascinating when we see figures from what I'd normally consider very distinctly separate chapters in history cross paths. Yeah, I mean, it's true. I actually see the path crossing happen a lot, especially Biden is bringing up all kinds of new path crossing. I mean, there are a few people that I could see referred to in a moldy library book on 1970s power politics or see featured in an internet article and get a reference to the same person. And, and it's not the only one. I'll give you some more examples. Franklin Roosevelt goes with his father to meet Grover Cleveland as a young man. May have been part of the reason, among other political factors, became a Democrat. Ditto to Al Gore. He goes to visit with his father, John Kennedy. Teddy Roosevelt works with Grover Cleveland again on civil service reform when Teddy Roosevelt is the minority leader in the New York State Legislature and Grover Cleveland is governor of New York. He'll later appoint the former president to a commission when Roosevelt is president himself, and he'll speak at his funeral. Although in an upcoming episode, I'll get into that, it didn't go so well necessarily. Dick Cheney works for an equal opportunity office in the Nixon administration, and in that office, a young Bill Bradley is there and may have even reviewed his application for the job. Despite images of them in our minds, perhaps, because we're always seeing Bradley, at least I do, as a basketball player forever, right? Um, they're pretty much the same age. 
And then obviously you have the Bill Clinton shaking hands with John Kennedy. And I have a great example from the vice presidents. A guy that's going to end up being vice president goes in to see Hannibal Hamlin, Lincoln's vice president. And, uh, you know, I guess asks him for lunch, want to ask him a few questions. And he goes, I will, Hamlin says, on the condition that you never become vice president. And it's William A. Wheeler who actually becomes vice president under Rutherford B. Hayes. And so you have these kind of like interesting things in history. Look, people last a long time in politics. There's a desire of politicians to stay in it if they can, while the youngins jump in, creating like large overlaps. Your very name is an asset in politics, so we keep running people and we keep running their sons and daughters as well. But anyway, back to the question. So what you bring up is that both Orville Faubus is blocking Little Rock High from being integrated, and then he's endorsing Jesse Jackson in 1988. And then you also want to talk about uh, Bill Clinton and Faubus and and their relationship. And I can touch on a bit uh, on, on those things. Where to begin? There's something interesting about Faubus, and it's also true of George Wallace, that both of them have these liberal beginnings. Faubus is kind of seen as a uh, mountain populist in Arkansas, and he's even attacked when he runs as, oh, you went to a communist school. Uh, you basically have um, a situation where in Arkansas, there's this college, Commonwealth College in Maine, Arkansas which is developed by socialists, and it's supposed to propagate socio-economic ideas. And Sam Faubus, Orville Faubus's father, is a socialist. He was very liberal in philosophy. He went beyond the old populist, yes. In fact, he became a member of the Socialist Party back when it was considered radical. But he would be appalled now at uh, some of the ideas of the so-called liberals of this age. You know, when they're let down in their morals or are the way of uh, way of doing things. Now he's he's simply to be appalled now at handing out food stamps to able-bodied young people because he thought there was enough work to do in this country that uh, it ought to be done and people could be paid for it. But but to give an able-bodied person who's able to work, give them cash or as an old-time socialist who believed in work, you'd be appalled by that. That's not so strange when you're in. The 1920s and 1930s, it really isn't. It's almost America's third party at this time. I had a whole podcast about that. Um, but it does mean that in the 50s, when you're running, you're going to be attacked. And you can bet that Orville Faubus was attacked by his primary and general election opponents for being a communist and going to a communist school. He insists that in his own governor's office, he's integrated. That he was for some civil rights. But nonetheless... He becomes a national spokesperson when he blocks the Little Rock students from attending school. And he gladly does it, takes the mantle. There's no other way to explain it. There's some suspicion that, you know, Arkansas politics, that he's had to increase taxes. And this is a great way to cover it up. And there's some similar things. This is really parallel to George Wallace in a lot of ways that he starts out being liberal and moderate on race issues and then sees that this is a weapon he can use in politics and Faubus is always, if you if you want his side of the story, and I'm not saying I'll buy this, he's always saying that he's just trying to stop violence when he was blocking that integration, that the federal government was doing it, but it was going to create a mob violence scene and he wanted to prevent it. So he just stopped it from happening. Yeah, A, there's evidence that he knew very well what was going on, and B, that's not what a leader does. We don't, you know, and I guess C would be, it's unconstitutional. He got points early on in Arkansas with the electorate then, and then later on became a figure of shame, really, for Arkansas. When it comes to Bill Clinton, it gets interesting. So the Democrats, at the time, Bill Clinton is this young man running. He takes on Paul Hammerschmidt, uh, a Republican congressman who like never loses and gives him the race of his life against this kid, Bill Clinton. And then he's a superstar in Arkansas politics. They start running for attorney general and running for governor. When they do, the real threat in Arkansas politics for the Democrats is coming from the Republicans. Winthrop Rockefeller had come to Arkansas and become the first Republican governor since the Reconstruction in Arkansas. And that's a threat for the Democratic Party. So to show unity, yes, you're going to see they'll have the old and the new Arkansas Democrats together. So Faubus will be there with Bill Clinton, even though Bill Clinton... 
you know, as a person and in statements he makes and his own feelings, we're very much on the side of those African-American students in the Little Rock crisis. But he is going to shake a hand where he needs to. Relations between the two are going to deteriorate. And in fact, um, the Republicans consider running Faubus at one point, and he sort of um, doesn't say yes, doesn't say no at first. He'll take a job from Frank White. Frank White is the governor of Arkansas who beats Bill Clinton initially wins the governor's race in 78. He's the youngest governor in the nation. He's just 31. He only gets one two-year term, and then he's defeated. He had raised the motor license tax and some other things people didn't like. Frank White, the Republican candidate, beats him, gives Oral Farbus a job as head of Veterans affair, Affairs in Arkansas. So, so Farbus has a state job at this point. Clinton comes back. One of the interesting things is, among other techniques that are employed, is including new things like apologizing to voters on TV in an ad with his face front and center. Um, Bill Clinton apologizes totally developed by Dick Morris, who now is a Republican consultant and doesn't like the Clintons too much. He finds a church that has their services televised, and he joins the chorus of that church, and he's singing there. And He manages a comeback in 1983, and he's governor again. Orville Faubus runs against Clinton, as you referenced, in 1986 for the Democratic primary. So Faubus running as a Democrat. He has a job. He had a job as a veterans affair. Bill Clinton fires him. Um, Bill Clinton's getting his way as governor in the second round. But one of the things he passes is an education reform bill. And he basically makes a deal with the legislature. If you require teachers to have tests to prove their qualifications, will you give the schools more money? Teachers hate this. Uh, Clinton is not friendly with the Arkansas Teacher Association. In that state, because of this, they don't like the test that they have to take. But to to answer your question, I mean, generally, the Faubus-Clinton primary isn't much of one. Um, Clinton destroys him, 60% of the vote in that Democratic primary in 1986. Faubus tries to pawn off that Little Rock at this point is a distant memory. Clinton... Um, I don't think that he needs to, I mean, Clinton's a smart politician. I don't think that he needs to rub it in Faubus's face as an active issue. He just simply says, I hope Arkansas citizens have a memory. And if they do, they'll do the right thing. Here's from the Associated Press at the time. Governor Bill Clinton and former Governor Oral Faubus, opponents in the May 27th Democratic primary for governor, clashed with fiery speeches during the weekend at a political rally in North Little Rock, Arkansas. Faubus wrapped Clinton's campaign for being better financed than his effort. Governor Bill Clinton has the millionaires, Faubus said, adding that he wanted rank-and-file support. Someone in the crowd shouted, who paid for your house? A reference to the house that Faubus built at Huntsville for a reported 300000 now valued at $1 million. This is 1986, and it's Arkansas. The people helped me pay for it, Faubus said. The Internal Revenue Service checked into the house and found nothing wrong, he said. Faubus also criticized Clinton for going on a Far East trade mission after Reynolds Metals Company announced it was shutting down its plants in Arkansas. Clinton responded during his speech that he would go to Timbuktu if I thought it would bring jobs to North Little Rock. 39-year-old governor also told the cheering crowd that it took me a while as a boy to learn that Oral Faubus was the best teller of fairy tales in the state. So they had a little primary. It wasn't much. There's an interesting little incident, though, that occurs where Faubus at one point comes up with a kind of a fake news story that the teachers in Central High School, where Faubus was so castigated over his actions there in the 50s, in 1986, the teachers were endorsing them. And it comes from a student newspaper article. However, later reporting found and teachers protested who were at that school that there was by no means a majority for Faubus in that school. Of course, teachers were mad at Clinton over the institution of testing for teachers in 1983, but, but that it was, it was an insult to teachers to say that the governor who had uh, caused all the trouble at Central High School in the 50s was being endorsed by them. And, you know, 60-30 and he's crushed. 
Um, there's a little bit of why did the whole thing happen? I think for Faubus, it was the last chance. If he didn't run then, he'd never run again. I mean, he was um, 76 at the time. He had won six terms for governor between 55 and 67. I also think that for the first time, Arkansas was going from two-year governor's term to four years. So it was kind of a prize and he wanted to jump in. It is interesting too. So let's talk about the Jesse Jackson thing. Jesse Jackson's campaign in 1988 actually does attract a bunch of kind of strange bedfellows, but not so strange when you examine the politics in their states, Southern white Democrats. For instance, Ernst, Ernest Hollings of South Carolina tries to run a presidential campaign in 84, doesn't get anywhere, then endorses Jackson in 88. He's a conservative Democrat. George Wallace appears with Jesse Jackson uh, while sick at the time but appears with him and praises him, uh, Wallace does, Jesse Jackson, for going after the rich to pay their fair share. So you see this kind of combination of Southern populism where they can find common ground with Jesse Jackson. But I think we also know the politics here, that for Wallace, for Hollings, and for Faubus, Jesse Jackson's a political force. He's going to motivate votes. It's politically good if you want to have any kind of future or improve your legacy in history to be on the side of um, Jackson as a Democrat in a Southern state. Now, the difference between George Wallace and Orville Faubus, Wallace apologizes for his actions. Faubus never does, only expresses some regret that it happened at all. That's different from an apology, but insists that his actions were to prevent violence only. And he does that really to the end of his days. Um, There's some interviews with him uh, talking about all that. So, Great question. Um, one of the books that I recommend, it doesn't directly um, address this, and I can't even verify if all the stories told are true, but it's Jim McDougal who was convicted during the Whitewater. He wrote a book called Arkansas Mischief. And like I said, a little bit of a grain of salt if you're reading it. He has a grudge against the Clintons because he got in trouble. But it's a very interesting perspective that he has on how politics work in Arkansas. If you just want to delve into it, that's a goodie. I mean, you could do a whole podcast on this stuff, like Southern Democrats in the 70s, 80s, and early 90s. Southern Democrats and Republicans battling it out. The surge of the Republican Party in the South. You could do a whole podcast on it. Not an episode, a whole podcast, I think. Most people know that Abraham Lincoln was a lawyer prior to becoming president. Few may know that he also had experience as a judge. And it was a good thing that he got that experience. Because as president, he'd have to be one again in practice. As an attorney, Lincoln worked the 8th Judicial Circuit in Illinois. Twice a year, usually in the fall and spring, he'd spend about three months traveling around by horseback and stopping in each county seat. He would argue cases in front of Judge David Davis, who's going to become an important figure politically for him later. Here's what uh, Sidney Blumenthal said in his book. Before he rode the railroads, Lincoln traveled around by a horse, Old Bob and Old Tom and Buggy. His horse was as raw-boned and weird-looking as himself, recalled his friend Henry Clay Whitney, and his buggy, an open one, as rude as either. His attire was that of an ordinary farmer or stock raiser, while the sum total of his baggage consisted of a very attenuated carpet bag, an old weather-beaten umbrella, and a short blue cloak reaching to his hips. You know, in those days, everybody travels together. He travels with David Davis. He called everyone by their last names. He might say Layman, or he might say Whitney, Hill, but Judge Davis he called Judge. Davis would usually ask Lincoln to act as judge for a few days. When he's ill, or if he had other personal business to take care of, it was an irregular procedure, and 
what Lincoln would have to do is say, look, I'm in Judge Davis's stead. He's asked me to. If both parties agree for me to be the judge, I'll be the judge. And he was kind of a judge pro term. And in a few cases, the Illinois Supreme Court threw out some of his decisions. Not most, though. Just a couple. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, it's Bruce. Listen, we all know the news headlines are full of wild stories, like how the world is tipping towards authoritarianism, all while somehow, simultaneously, freezing, flooding, and on fire. It's a lot to take in. But what if, instead of being on the brink of disaster, we're actually on the cusp of a better world? If I've got your attention, then I highly recommend tuning to a podcast that offers a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people. What Could Go Right is the acclaimed news podcast from the Progress Network. Zachary Carabell and Emma Varvalukas dive into the biggest news and most pressing topics of our time, from climate change to politics, and make the case for a brighter future. Season 5 features fascinating guests like Democracy scholar Yesha Munk on the hidden perils of identity politics. And NPR anchor Steve Inskeep about the importance of talking to people who differ from you. And what Abe Lincoln learned from those conversations that helped him unify the country. It's time to ditch the doom-scrolling polarization and start focusing on some of the things going right. So check out What Could Go Right wherever you listen to podcasts. How he decided his cases was not a mystery because we have a letter from him to a fellow named King who had just become a justice of the peace and Lincoln was advising him. There is no mystery in this matter, King. When you have a case between neighbors before you, listen well to all the evidence, stripping yourself of all prejudice, if any you have, and throwing away, if you can, all technical law knowledge. Hear the lawyers Make their argument as patiently as you can, and after the evidence and the lawyer's arguments are through, then stop one moment and ask yourself, what is justice in this case? And let that sense of justice be your decision. Let's repeat that. Hear the lawyers, make their argument as patiently as you can, and after the evidence and the lawyer's arguments are through, stop one moment and ask yourself, what is justice in this case? And let that sense of justice be your decision. So here's one of the cases he rules on. One time he heard a case involving a merchant and a father of a minor son. The merchant had sold the boy a $28 suit on credit. Without the father's knowledge, without the father's approval, the businessman held the father responsible for the debt that the son incurred. To hold the parent liable for the son's debt, the merchant had to prove that the clothes were a necessity and suitable to the boy's lifestyle. The father was prosperous, and the merchant contended he ought to pay the boy's bill. However, Judge Lincoln ruled against the merchant. I have rarely in my life worn a suit of clothes costing $28, he said. Law is nothing else but the best of wise men applied for ages to the transactions and business of mankind, so said Lincoln. In another case, a farmer named Hartsfeller sues his neighbor, Trowbridge, for damages resulting when Trowbridge's cattle ate up the corn stored in Hartsfeller's corn rack. 
Trowbridge had leased a portion of his land to Hartfeller, who had raised some corn on the land. Contrary to Trowbridge's instructions, Hartsfeller had stored the corn on the same land. Trowbridge had enclosed his farm with a fence and turned his cattle out to graze, like he normally would. The cattle enters the area where Hartsfeller is now storing the corn and devours it. And you say you went over and fenced the corn after you asked him not to crib it on your land, Judge Lincoln asked of Trowbridge, who again is the cattle owner here. Yes, sir. Trowbridge, you have won your case. When Lincoln becomes president, there's another matter that will come before him, one that will tax again his skills as a lawyer and a judge. And it's one that he got a lot of criticism for at the time, political criticism, and one that he's still getting flack for today, political criticism again, posthumously, but exactly at opposite sides of the argument. We'll get into it. This is about the Dakota War, the U.S.-Dakota War of 1862, which places this Indian-U.S. conflict between settlers and Indians right in the middle of our American Civil War. So Lincoln's dealing with all sorts of things, what to do about the Emancipation Proclamation, the various battles, the generals, and he has to deal with a new challenge. Indian nations in the area that became the state of Minnesota right before Lincoln is elected president in 1856, Minnesota becomes a state, were used to operating in the land that is the state of Minnesota. As soon as it became a state, more settlers start arriving, encroaching on Indian lands. Through treaties, Indian nations had made concessions of land for specific uses by the U.S. government. And in exchange, they get money, goods, various promises. They're actually sent gold. Because of the Civil War, Indian agents are late with U.S. government gold annuity payments that are owned to the Dakota. The traders see this and say, okay, we see what's going on. Civil War, this whole system's going to be disrupted. We're not going to extend as much credit to you. Tribesmen are now starving. Chief Little Crow, urged on by young Native men, um, attack a trader. Now, this trader had said, let the Indians eat grass. They kill the man and stuff his mouth with grass. They kill five settlers in Acton, Minnesota. And they attack the trading post. They kill hundreds of settlers. Um, the U.S. government responds with a volunteer army led by Governor Alexander Ramsey and Colonel Henry Hastings Sibley. And they finally defeat Little Crow and his band at the Battle of Wood Lake. By the end of the war, almost 400 settlers have been killed, 77 soldiers have been killed, 29 volunteers killed. Dakota casualties is unknown, but it's high. Little Crow escapes with about 300 into the northern plains of the Dakota Territory and into Canada. But left behind are 2,000 Dakota, most of whom appear to be non-combatants. This is where it starts. A military commission and Sibley and the governor and others in this area are extremely angry. They sentence 303 Sioux fighters to be executed after deadly fights. These trials are far. Some of them take five minutes. They deny the Indians any counsel. They don't understand what's being said during the proceedings. They want to execute the 303, but they come at part of snag. And that is that the president of the United States must review military executions. This was a war. General Pope wants to rush the review. Sibley wants to rush the review. Pope telegraphs the names of the 303 people that Lincoln should just approve their execution. It's picked up in the newspaper that the general had wasted so much on, on expensive telegraphic correspondence. So that's picked up. Lincoln refuses and said, Pope, I want to send me the full casework and please use the mails. Lincoln reviews the cases and he says this, anxious to not act with so much clemency as to encourage another outbreak on one hand, nor with so much severity as to be real cruelty on the others. I ordered a careful examination of the records of the trials to be made. In first of view, in view of first ordering the execution of such 
has had been proved guilty of violating females. So why is he doing this? Well, you have to remember, this is still considered, the Indians are considered a nation. This is considered a war. You can't just execute for fighting in a battle. Um, So he's isolating cases where there might be an actual crime. Only two men are found guilty of rape. And Lincoln then expands the criteria to include those who have participated in massacres of civilians rather than just battles. He made his decision and forwarded a list of 39 names to the general. They are hanged at Mankato, Minnesota. Now, here's the thing. Minnesota is a Republican state. Republicans in Minnesota warn Lincoln, if you show mercy here, that will carry a large political cost. And lessons need to be taught here. This is a very popular issue in Minnesota. Lincoln responds, I will not trade lives for votes. Now, in the context of the 1860s, Lincoln is criticized for being uh, for offering too much clemency. But in the most recent uh, social media post, it says, on this day, 26 December 1862, 38 Americans are executed in the U.S.'s largest mass hanging. The execution was ordered by Abraham Lincoln. And this has been passed around. In the AP and Snopes have had to say this is true. What they're forgetting, though, is that the other sentences, uh, the 265, were commuted. And so Lincoln's still getting walloped for something that he did, but didn't do in the context of what they're saying. It's what people want most. Just leadership, good management of the office, to do the job, to do it well, to be fair. You know, it's not like you can't criticize Lincoln at all. And certainly the easiest way to criticize him is to go out of time and just apply like things that he says or things that he did to modern values and then he doesn't look as good, right? But I think contextualized, Lincoln stands up pretty well. I mean, really, um, you can check some of the stories and things like that, but there's real fairness, real leadership and good qualities there. Enthroned in realms of light, Columbia's scene of glorious toils I write. While freedom's cause her anxious breast alarms, she flashes dreadful in refulgent arms. To be refulgent is to shine brightly, refulgent arms. In April of 1776, Thomas Paine publishes a poem in the Pennsylvania Magazine. He thinks it'll stoke the spirit of the country at this important time. It's a nod to the American Continental Army's new general, George Washington, and it's by Phyllis Wheatley. The author's a woman, already on that count a historic figure, writing a poem, a poem that's published. She's one who, like many, once admired the British, then got frustrated, then got hostile. She now hoped for a new country, and it comes out in the writing. Celestial Choir Enthroned in realms of light, Columbia's scene of glorious toils I write. While freedom's cause her anxious breast alarms, she flashes dreadful in refulgent arms. See Mother Earth, her offspring's fate bemoaned, and nations gaze at scenes before unknown. See the bright beams of heaven's revolving light, involved in sorrows and veil of night. This poet has a knack for words. She was once a supporter of the British, and she was not unlike many in Boston now who were frustrated. The goddess comes. She moves divinely fair. Olive and laurel bind her golden hair. Wherever shines this native of the skies, unnumbered charms and recent graces rise. The new commanding general from Virginia inspired hope, and she writes her take on the cause of freedom. Muse, bow propitious while my pen relates how poor her armies through a thousand gates, as when Aeolus's heavens 
fair face deforms, enwrapped in tempest and a night of storms. Astonished ocean feels the wild uproar. The refluent surges beat the sounding shore. Propitious is fortune or lucky, and refluent means kind of what it sounds like, the ebbing of water against the shore. Or as thick as leaves in autumn's golden rain, such and so many moves the warrior's train. In bright array, they seek the work of war, where high unfurled the ensign waves in air. Shall I to Washington their praise recite? Enough, though knowest them in the fields of light. Thee, first in peace and honors, we demand the grace and glory of thy martial band. Famed for thy valor, for thy virtues more, hear every tongue thy guardian aid implore. Phyllis Wheatley, we are in full Washington fan mode now. But how would you feel when someone has led the armies that are saving your city, that got the British to turn their ships away and go? I mean, pretty good, I think, right? Thy every action let the goddess guide, a crown, a mansion, and a throne that shine. With gold unfading, Washington, be thine. The reason that this poem is very historic and not just some fan letter written to Washington at the time, is that Phyllis Wheatley was born not in the United States, but in Africa, and bought here on a slave ship. As she wrote the poem, she was famous, published in many journals, traveled to many places, uh, went on poetry reading trips to Europe, but she was also enslaved. Wheatley had been seized from Senegal, Gambia, West Africa. She was about seven years old. She was transported to the docks of Boston with a shipment of slaves who, of enslaved people who, because of their age or physical frailty, were unsuited for rigorous labor and they were brought up north. Susanna Wheatley, the wife of a prominent Boston tailor, John Wheatley, purchased her for a trifle because the captain of the ship believed that she would not survive. Um, the Wheatleys, including their son, Nathaniel, the daughter, Mary, they don't excuse Wheatley from domestic duties, but they teach her to read and teach her to write, teach her the Bible, teach her about astronomy. She starts reading on her own about geography, history, British literature. She particularly likes John Milton, Alexander Pope. She loves the Greek and Latin classics, Virgil, Ovid, Terence, Homer, when she's 18, she has already gathered a collection of 28 poems that she's written herself. And with the help of Miss Wheatley, she runs advertisements for subscribers to her poems in Boston newspapers, 1772. And accompanied by Nathaniel Wheatley, they go to London. And she's welcomed by several dignitaries, including abolitionists, the Earl of Dartmouth, a philanthropist John Thornton, and... American in London, Benjamin Franklin. Although she doesn't reference it in her poems to Washington, she does speak out against slavery. Here's what she writes to General David Wooster, talking about patriots who call themselves Christian, yet oppress African Americans. But how presumptuous shall we hope to find divine acceptance with the almighty mind, while yet, O oh, deed ungenerous, they disgrace, and hold in bondage Africa's blameless race. Let virtue reign and then accord our prayers. Be victory ours and generous freedom theirs. In 1774, Phyllis Wheatley is freed. After she's freed, she gets into a marriage where the husband is greatly indebted and ends up in debtor's, he ends up in debtor's prison. She lives in a very rundown conditions. Her health is not good. She has asthma, which she suffered from for most of her life. She manages to live till just independence is won. And in 1784, she writes this poem. Britannia owns her independent reign, Hibernia, Scotia, and the realms of Spain. And great Germania's ample coast admires the generous spirit that Columbia fires. Auspicious heaven shall fill with favoring gales. 
wherever Columbia spreads her swelling sails. To every realm shall peace her charms display, and heavenly freedom spread her gold ray. I'm enjoying quite much Woody Halton's Liberty is Sweet, the Hidden History of the American Revolution. Um, and he has a passage in here that Phyllis Wheatley's, he suggests that Phyllis Wheatley's poem may have been intended for a political effect. And that was the successful recruitment of African-American soldiers on the American side. On September 5th, 1775, the Battle of Bunker Hill really fought on Breed's Hill. It's a little bit far now. Some of the rage over fighting the British is, is already starting to seep a bit. 14 colonial officers petitioned the Massachusetts Assembly on behalf of Salem Poor, a free African-American who had behaved at Breed's Hill like an exceptional officer, as well as an excellent soldier. Indeed, African-Americans had fought at Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill. On October 8, 1775, Washington's Council of War expelled African-American soldiers from the army. Two months later, Washington changes his mind. Was it the petition of the Massachusetts men? Well, Woody Halton suggests something else. Washington's reversal may have been driven in part by sentiment. On October 26, 1775, Phyllis Wheatley sent him a poem he she had written in his honor. Wheatley's timing, less than three weeks after the banishment of the Black Continentals, invites to surmise that she knew about it and wished to try the effects of flattery in getting it reversed. The master of Mount Vernon read Wheatley's poem in December, just before welcoming African-Americans back into the army. He did not get around to thanking Wheatley until February 1776. But when he did, he invited her to visit him at Cambridge. Now, Washington reverses his decision. The Continental Congress actually goes a step, um, actually restrains Washington a step. The Continental Congress decides only to allow free African-Americans who had previously served in the army already to come back in, men like Salem Poor. But in violation of Congress's directive, northern colonies soon began enlisting other free African-Americans, and before long, they even accepted those who were held in slavery to serve in the army. Southern colonies and later states also welcomed freedmen, though never slaves, at least not officially. By war's end, some 9,000 African-Americans had served in the Whig Army and Navy, roughly the same number who enlisted with the British. And I like Woody Halton for giving us just a little more of the story. I mean, without the whole story toppling over, right? But giving us some, some insights into, into uh, what was going on. We talked about that in a podcast about Valley Forge. Probably replay that podcast coming in December, but uh, I believe it was 2017. And uh, we talked about the number of African-Americans serving in Valley Forge. When I don't remember showing up in the high school textbooks I read. Maybe it was there. Um, in any case, uh, could have been the war situation, the desperate need for soldiers, Washington's own opinion, maybe more nuanced than some think, and it could have also been a bit of the poet. Doesn't look like much. It's a green house. It's actually not two stories, but one and a half stories which means the upper bedroom is kind of you gotta duck. With two large windows in the front, a pretty average-looking door, at least for our times. It's buried in tree cover almost, and it's made of simple clapboard. Yet it was the home of a president. Millard Fillmore built this house in 1826. He and his wife, Abigail, lived there until 1830, and their only son was born in the home. And here, Fillmore began a political career that would lead him to the presidency. He had been born in a log cabin, Cuyahoga County, New York, 1800. 
limited educational opportunities, learned law. He was the only lawyer for a time in East Aurora, New York, and he and his wife taught as well as practicing law. In 1828, he gets caught up in that anti-Masonic movement that we talked about, becomes an anti-Masonic candidate and wins election to the state legislature. That's the beginning of politics for him. He's connected with Thurlow Weed, who's a very important boss in anti-Masonic, Whig, and Republican politics in New York. But Fillmore will never, unlike Weed, he'll never pick up that Republican part. He's happy to be a Whig, not quite a Republican. And that's an important part of the, the story. He moves to Buffalo. He becomes a congressman and will serve in Congress for 10 years. He runs for governor of New York in 1844, and he loses, but people notice him and know the name now, statewide in New York. So when Zachary Taylor becomes the Whig candidate for president, some people want Henry Clay, some people want Winfield Scott, uh, Weed and others say, well, we've got Fillmore who can balance him out on the Whig ticket as vice president, a Southerner and a Northerner. Now, here's what you probably know about Millard Fillmore, that he became president upon Zachary Taylor's death, that he supports Henry Clay's compromise of 1850. We could also say Stephen Douglas's compromise of 1850 because Clay is ill when the bills are passed, but it involves a set of trades. We're going to end slave trading in the D.C. We're going to admit California as a free state, no slavery allowed, But we're also going to enact a Fugitive Slave Act with teeth, which is going to send people up north to pursue those that had been held in slavery, um, ensnare them and bring them back to the south, and a lot of other abuses associated with that. We know these things about Fillmore. We may know one more thing, that his last presidential race, he ran as a know-nothing for president. What we don't know is, is he or isn't he? Was he really a know-nothing? And the anti-side of this question really comes from Alan Nevins, one of his biographers, who said that nothing he ever uttered in his life indicated that he was a know-nothing. And he never ran on the ticket of or supported the party before. And in some measure, Nevins is accurate. Um, Miller Fillmore runs on the what's called the American Party ticket in 1856, and it is what people call Know Nothing because they have these secret meetings where they talk about the immigrants. And when people ask about the meetings, it's said, like, I know nothing. They don't have printed on tickets like this is the Know Nothing ticket. The American Party, the Know Nothing, there is a complicated history that doesn't get talked a lot about. We we do hear a lot about these silly Know Nothings who had these clubs, and then the party ended in 1856, with its last candidate being Millard Fillmore. We don't realize there is a series of interwoven politics, and really, the Republican Party in its infancy. And that goes from what Thurlow Weed's doing in New York, to what the original creators of the Republican Party are doing in Wisconsin to what Lincoln's trying to do originally after the Nebraska, Kansas-Nebraska Act is passed and he wants to form a, a group in opposition to that and realizes he can get former Democrats, old-style Whigs, and maybe even some abolitionists or people strongly opposed to the extension of slavery into the territories on a kind of anti-Nebraska ticket. It's sometimes called a fusion ticket. Douglas complains about things like, you know, thinking of Stephen Douglas or Thomas B. Hen- or Thomas A. Hendricks in Indiana. You know, c- Democrats are complaining about things like they, they are grouping people who would be against each other in every other situation on this Nebraska issue alone. This is what Lincoln is very much trying to do. Lincoln speaks out against know-nothingism in private letters. He says, I am not a know-nothing. How could I be? He talks to his friend Josh Speed how silly the idea is, but he has every intention to use the organization of Know Nothings and bring them into the party and to accept the support and votes of those who are pledged Know Nothings. So if Lincoln can do it, why not Fillmore? And you have some evidence to pursue the Nevin side of this question 
that Fillmore is just kind of a, um, you know, a, a, a political opportunist. And this is just a party that he can adapt. And he has a great cause that his supporters would like you to consider in presenting him as a hero. And that is the preservation of the union. The Republicans will not. They're a sectional party. If they win, there'll be war, at least is the position. The Southerners will not. If they win, there will be war. Only the American party in the 1856 election can provide union. You know, it's kind of like what happened in the 2016 election when the Libertarian Party nominated Gary Johnson and then William Weld, who hadn't, you know, been huge Libertarians. They'd run as Republicans in the past, particularly Weld. The American Party nominates Millard Fillmore and Andrew Jackson Donaldson, who is um, Andrew Jackson's nephew. Donaldson had been a Democrat. He had been pro all about letting Catholics vote and, you know, getting the immigrant vote in, in, in many elections before this. So all of a sudden he's running the American Party. Um, so the argument is that what Millard Fillmore had done is really just gotten his supporters to kind of take over the national apparatus of this know-nothing party, turn it into a Fillmore party, turn it into a union party, make the union the most important thing. Here's what he said um, in a letter to a very good friend of his. When I saw the Whig Party demoralized and efforts made to convert it at the North into a sectional abolition party, I advised my friends to unite with the American or Know Nothing Party and maintain a national organization in favor of the Union. Many did, and I was often pressed to follow my own advice and give the influence of my name to the party, which I was reluctant to do mainly because I had drawn, withdrawn from politics and did not like the secrecy of the order. But I finally overcame my scruples, and at a council in my own house, previous to my departure for Europe, I was initiated into the order of the know-nothings and became a member, and I am one now. While I did not intend to take any public or active part, I neither sought secrecy nor to give publicity to the fact of my membership." He admits in a letter, and this letter is to uh, Georgian Mason, that uh, he uh, is indeed one. So you can make this case that it was merely political opportunity. Let me see if we got something else here. Um, From the Life and Public Services of Millard Fillmore, W.L. Barr. This is written during his lifetime. Native Americanism had its origin in the most utter prostration of the ballot box and the grossest abuses of the elective franchise in the municipal elections of our extensive cities. First movement was in the city of New York in 1834. The intolerant frauds practiced upon the city by foreigners and the immense influx into that city of thousands uh, resulted in an organization for the purpose of counteracting their influence. This party, however, began so far as the organization was concerned to die away without having accomplished more than the avowal of principles. In 1844, the city of New York elected their mayor upon the American ticket and most of the city council. And in what Barr blames for the lack of election of, a, of Clay in 1844, the reason Polk wins is because of the effect of naturalization frauds and the foreign vote. Here, Whigs began to open their eyes and become alarmed at the fearful balance of power exerted by them. So, you know, on one hand... It's Fillmore, you know, oh, I'm just kind of creating a movement. I'm creating a party. On the other hand, well, we have a letter in 1855 to his friend Isaac Newton. I return your many thanks for your information on the subject of politics. I am always happy to hear what is going forward. But independently of the fact that I feel myself withdrawn from the political arena, I have been too much depressed in spirit to take an active part in the late elections. I've contented myself with giving a silent vote for Mr. Ullman for governor. While, however, I am an inactive observer of public events, I am by no means an indifferent one. And I may say to you in the frankness of friendship, I have for a long time looked with dread and apprehension at the corruption, corrupting influence, which the contest for the foreign vote is exciting upon our elections. This seems to result from its being banded together and subject to the control of a few interested and selfish leaders. Hence, it has been the subject of bargain and sale, 
and each of the great political parties of the country have been bidding to obtain it. Where is the true-hearted American whose cheek does not tingle with shame and mortification, Fillmore says, to see our highest and most coveted foreign missions, filled by men of foreign birth, to the exclusion of the native-born. So this is what he's saying to his friend Isaac Newton. Now, I mean, look, he accepts in 1856 in running a platform which will give most of the jobs that the federal government has to Native Americans first, that will set a limit to being a citizen at a 21 years of residence in the United States, an increase. Here's what Paul Finkelman writes in his book on America, on uh, Miller Fillmore. Fillmore was always comfortable with nativists and utterly oblivious to the concerns of immigrants and religious minorities, just as he had no concern for the plights of fugitive slaves or the rights of free blacks. When the anti-Masonic movement ran its course, Fillmore became a traditional Whig, but easily trafficked with anti-Catholic and anti-immigrant groups. Significantly, Fillmore's rivals in the New York Whig party, William Seward and Weed, opposed any bargain with the nativists because it would simultaneously weaken the party's integrity and alienate immigrants. Fillmore was more comfortable. That's what Finkelman writes. So I think that um, Nevins aside, yes, Fillmore really did run as a know-nothing in the 1856 election. He knew what he's doing. And moreover, it wasn't simply that he was eating the party from the inside out to make it a Fillmore party. He was to an extent, but he was probably going to have to enact some of those policies if he were elected. The views of the party were not utterly foreign to his own. He may argue it to contextualize his arguments of what he's really against is the using of votes, is the corruption that comes from um, not fully educating newly arrived immigrants, permitting them to vote, and then their vote is kind of bundled up by a political machine and we get corruption. That would be the way he would phrase his argument. But nonetheless, uh, we can say that uh, on balance, yeah, Fillmore's a know-nothing. He may have not attended a secret meeting or used the term, but he was. And it's also important, um, there's a lot of, so it's an important balance. If we talk about the history of the parties, right? Um, now that Fillmore is an example of this, because he's really not, but just going back to the general sense that know-nothings were part of the original coalition that built the Republican Party, provided votes in the Congress when they didn't fully get the, the Congress. You'll hear a lot about the history of the Democratic Party, and some deserve it because there were some really bad folks uh, who went under the title of Democrats and were Klan members and the like, and that's absolutely the case. The Republican Party's origins aren't so clean in this if you consider being anti-immigrant a bad thing. And look, I mean, we're having a resurgence of anti-immigration policies. Um, and you can say, well, I'm only doing that because I'm anti-extreme. Well, that's also what the know-nothings were. A lot of the know-nothings were saying. Certainly Fillmore would have said at the time. So you do have to acknowledge, if we're going to look at the bad dirt of the parties, that both of them have a little bit of that in their origin stories. So that's one thing that's important. You can't hook Fillmore with the Republican Party because he never ran as a Republican. He didn't like that side of the party. He ran as a Whig or an American party. Actually, Fillmore in 1864 supports McClellan over Lincoln. And in doing so, would have supported a party that would have been against what he ran in 1856. But he didn't like what Lincoln was doing in his opinion. Here's what Edward Purcell says, uh, Biographical Dictionary of Vice Presidents. Reluctantly accepted the nomination and began a campaign that stressed the significance of the union and the necessity of compromise. The election was an embarrassing defeat. He collected only eight electoral votes and ran a distant third. Following the elections, he finally recognized the inevitable and retired from national politics. 
During the Civil War, Fillmore organized pro-Union demonstrations in Buffalo, encouraged the enlistment of men, and created a fund to assist local families of volunteers. Though Fillmore never approved the Republican Party's conduct of the war, he unselfishly supported the Union cause throughout. When war concluded, he was given the solemn honor of escorting Abraham Lincoln's body from Batavia to Buffalo following the president's assassination. So kind of like a little episode of small plates, little small little things that might make one point in some argument you're having two years from now. I want to thank you for listening. The website is www.myhistorycanbeatupyourpolitics.com. If you like the program, please tell someone about it. Thanks for listening. Thank you.